AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by the U.S. Grains Council. In tough economic times, it's good to remember that agriculture is one of America's bright spots. That's true at home, and it's true internationally. The United States is the world's top agricultural exporter, with over $135 billion in exports last year. Those exports supported more than one million jobs at home. The U.S. Grains Council is one of the leaders of the U.S. Ag Export Team. It operates in over 50 countries to develop markets for U.S. corn, sorghum, barley, and co-products. Winning those markets is a team effort. The Council partners with the USDA's Foreign Agricultural Service to get the job done. That partnership, by the way, is just one more of the many programs that depend on the reauthorization of the Farm Bill. And now, AgriPulse Open Mic. Dr. Richard Raymond, welcome to AgriPulse Open Mic. Thank you. You were a former Undersecretary for Food Safety with USDA, and recently you've been working with the pork industry to um, seemingly help them to be able to utilize products that have been scientifically uh, founded and adopted, but yet are having political issues getting those uh, uh, that final pork into export markets. So let me start with asking you about products that we're using today in our uh, meat industry. Are they um, a product of, in your point of view, good science, that allows the producers some advantages and does not have a negative impact on consumers? Well, I think uh, for the great most part that is an accurate statement. Uh, there's a product called ractopamine, which is a finishing product given uh, supplemented. Uh, we supplement the feed of, of pork and cattle and, and turkeys uh, during the last few days uh, before they go to slaughter to produce a leaner uh, increased amount of meat, so it's it's a healthier meat, but it also adds pounds to the finished product that uh, avoids having to continue to feed and water and house these animals for a longer period of time. There are some products like antibiotics, which are a little controversial uh, as to whether or not they might contribute to antibiotic resistance in humans. I also speak a lot on that issue, and I think for the very most part, the, the antibiotics used in animals are are antibiotics not used in human medicine, and so therefore there is no crossover. But there are a couple classes of antibiotics I think we need to continue to discuss uh, as far as their efficacy in animals and safety in humans. Well, let me start with antibiotics that they have been used for a long period of time at a uh, at a subclinical level uh, to get increased feed efficiency and gain. Um, do you feel like that today is... Uh, uh, necessary to continue, or should they only be, in, be used in therapeutic work? Well, the great majority of antibiotics used in animals are used in therapeutic work for treatment of disease, uh, for prevention of disease, and for control of disease. And I think those purposes are all uh, uh, very, very proper. They certainly FDA approved, and the doses used for those three different categories are FDA approved. So they're really not subtherapeutic; they are therapeutic for the intent. The ones for increasing the efficiency of feed comprise about 15% of all antibiotics used in animals, and the great majority of those antibiotics used for feed efficiency have absolutely no use in human medicine or extremely limited use in medicine as a very poor second or third choice for treatment of specific diseases. 
But turning to the political side of this, I recall being in the uh, metro in Washington, D.C., and seeing huge signs from the Pew Charitable Trust that said, look who's hogging our antibiotics. And there was a major campaign to see if they could stop use of antibiotics in animals. How did that play out as far as the fact that they didn't succeed yet? Well, they're still trying, and and I think that's where we have to be careful because if they remove antibiotics for everything except treatment of infectious diseases, we will see a whole lot more disease in animals if we can't control and prevent disease, as they saw in Denmark when they banned the use of antibiotics for uh, increasing feed efficiency. They actually saw an increase in the use of tetracycline by 30%, the total amount prescribed for use in animals. So if you're treating a whole lot more disease, you increase the amount of antibiotic exposure to these pathogens and you therefore increase the possibility of increased antibiotic resistance developing. So when they say they're hogging our antibiotics, they they like to state that 80% of all antibiotics sold in this country are used to treat perfectly healthy animals. And the 80% number is accurate if you use the weight of the antibiotics, but it takes a lot more kilograms to treat a pneumonia in a 2,000-pound bowl than in a five-pound premature infant for one thing, but since the, since the weight is the only numbers we have, we have to discuss that 80% intelligently. And of that amount of antibiotics used in animals, over 80% of that 80% are antibiotics of very limited use in human medicine or the class of ionophore, which represents 30% of that antibiotic has never even been approved for use in humans and won't be approved for use in humans because it causes very serious side effects. So they can prescribe all the ionophores they want in animal medicine, and as a physician, it doesn't bother me one bit because I'm never going to prescribe that antibiotic for a human. Is the reality in antibiotics like it is for any other product that comes on the market that's a biological, that over time nature challenges it and it may become less effective? So what they're saying is a natural course of what is taking place, irregardless of what agricultural use of antibiotics may be? Um, Yeah. And I think there's examples of, of where their logic is, is flawed. For instance, streptococcus, which is a very common bacteria which causes strep throat in kids and causes skin infections, is, is still responsive to plain old-fashioned penicillin, which was first used in 1947. It's still the drug of choice for syphilis. Those pathogens have developed no resistance to penicillin in spite of the fact that we've used it for over 60 years. On the other hand, Staphylococcus, another common bacteria found on our skin that causes abscesses, has the ability to develop resistance overnight almost. It was first used in human medicine in 1947. And in 1950, 40% of all Staphylococcus isolates out of hospitals were resistant to penicillin, and penicillin had not even been used in animals. Methicillin was was first produced in 1959 to treat penicillin-resistant Staph aureus, and one year later, in 1960, the first case of methicillin-resistant Staph aureus was discovered in England. It's referred to as MRSA, and MRSA causes a lot of illnesses and deaths every year in the United States, and Pew Foundation and others like to point the finger at agriculture and say it's because of the use of of antibiotics in agriculture that we have this MRSA, and it's just not true. Methicillin has never been used in animal agriculture. It's a human use only, and MRSA, until recently, was only acquired in the hospital setting when you had surgery. Let me turn to ractopamine. 
right. which is the product that is getting the most uh, play today uh, within consumer circles and within agriculture and within international politics. You told me earlier what ractopamine does, but why is there the resistance to its use by countries like China and Russia? Russia, I believe, uses bans uh, of imported meat just to protect their own producers and to keep the price of meat high. If the price of pork is so high in Russia that it is inviting for foreign countries, such as a country from America, to start growing hogs in Russia and slaughtering and processing there to sell them, then it's good for business for Russia. They use the Russia bans. They ban poultry at periodic times. They ban ban rectopamine supplemented pork. I I believe theirs is all economical and political. What about China? China is a little bit more difficult to describe. Again, they have one of the highest prices of pork per pound. Uh, in the world, and so therefore it is of some benefit also, again, to them to keep the price of meat high. On the other hand, part of the science behind the China ban is their ban has been consistent. It's been there for a long time. Russia kind of comes and goes. For a while, it's okay to export meat to Russia, and in a while, it won't be okay. So they they kind of flow with the wind. But China has been consistent. They have ban on all beta agonists, of which ractopamine is one, of many drugs within that class of beta agonists. And they've had a ban on beta agonists to be used in meat-producing animals for, for many, many years based on a, another beta agonist called clenbuterol, which has a very long half-life, tends to accumulate in muscle and organs, and therefore when those animals are consumed, there's enough clenbuterol in the meat or in the organs that people can become ill and have become ill from consuming meat supplemented with And so their ban was passed many, many years ago before the safety and efficacy of rectopamine was fully studied and discovered and approved for use in the U.S. They simply have not changed that ban. I think they're considering it. They've asked the Codex Alimentarius Commission to take a look at residues in lung tissue because those studies have never been done because in the United States we don't eat pig lungs, so therefore there was no need to see what the residue levels were. those studies are underway, and I'm, I'm of the opinion that China probably will relax this ban in the next couple of years. Let me turn to the um, consumer fear, or some who may be activists fanning the flames, and their utilization of social media. Have you seen a direct correlation between the increased use of social media by people who fear a product like ractopamine Ken, I think all you have to do is look back to a summer ago in lean, finely textured beef, at that time referred to as pink slime, and see what happened in just 23 to 28 days once uh, the news media came out with the story of how it's fanned through social media to to almost every consumer in this country. My neighbors, my golf buddies, everybody's asked me, what the hell is this pink slime? I mean, it was like Everybody knew about pink slime, but they weren't reading uh, the rest of the paper. And social media, I think, can fan those flames extremely well. It's it's an outlet we didn't that we didn't have 20, 30 years ago. I, I part of my talk when I talk about the power of the press, the power of media is I've got a graph that shows that from 1996 to 1997, the number of media hits related to recalls for foodborne illnesses doubled. 
and it has stayed doubled ever since. And it has stayed at that increased level. In one year, it doubled. That was the year we found you could get sick and die from eating spinach that was contaminated with E. coli 0157. We, we never had thought about eating vegetables as being a source of E. coli 0157. It changed the way we looked at food safety. But the other thing that happened in 2007, actually September 26, 2006, Facebook went public. It was available to everybody over 13 years of age. You didn't have to be a college student anymore. So 2007 was the first year of Facebook. And that's part part of that doubling of the media hits. I think it's just an amazing statistic. Could I ask you in summary here what you think the best approach is moving forward for agriculture to continue to be able to be scientific and competitive and productive in this political environment? I think our people involved in animal agriculture need to become vocal activists. A lot of them, the group I was speaking to yesterday, a lot of them are small-town America. They have huge plants, maybe 2,500 sows, farrowing units, whatever, but they are members of a community. And they're not members of the New York City community, the L.A. community. They're members of rural Iowa, rural Minnesota, rural Wisconsin, rural North Carolina. They've got a weekly newspaper or a daily newspaper editor that they should befriend. They can go talk to the Chamber of Commerce. They can talk to the Kiwanis groups in the American Legion or the Lions Club or whoever who wants to have an educational symposium. They can tell them about how we raise animals today compared to the way our granddads raised animals 40 years ago. It's an astounding change. And there are fewer people involved in animal agriculture, so there are fewer people that understand what they're doing. But they need to go explain to these people that the animals they are raising are being fed to their children and grandchildren, and they have no qualms about the safety of the meat, and here's why. And they need to get these forums. They need to become acquainted with their state senators and and representatives and maybe even their governor. They, they need to become political activists so that when things begin to percolate and arise and someone tries to pass a law, they've already made contact with their U.S. senator or their congressional representative at the House of Representatives in D.C. so they can call them up and say, we've got a problem. I want to explain it to you. You can't do it just when someone wants to pass a law. You've got to get acquainted with them when they're back home campaigning and, and have them in their confidence so that they can have a healthy discussion with them. There's two ways to to pass food policy. One is through deliberative open discussions and rules and regulations, which is what the FDA and the USDA do when they try to change policies. It's very deliberative. It's very long-term. It takes a long time to get done. But everybody has a chance. But Congress can overnight tack an amendment onto a bill that must be passed. They call that Christmas treeing. They tack an amendment on that's very controversial, not based on science, at least not based on biological science, it's based on political science. And that bill has to get passed because it's a budget bill or something like that. And suddenly they put a ban on the use of antibiotics to animals or something. You know, it can be anything. They've done, I saw, saw it many times, unfortunately, when I was at USDA trying to get policy passed through the regulatory process. All of a sudden a law was passed and said we can't use any federal dollars to promulgate rules. And we, they, the industry has to guard against that kind of action. I, I believe the only way to do it is become activists. Well, I think that's as clear a summation of proactive versus reactive as I've heard. And I thank you very much for your information and for being our guest on AgriPulse Open Mic. My pleasure. AgriPulse Open Mic.
has been brought to you by the U.S. Grains Council. I'm Ken Root.